I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus 16. And if you ever want to know if what we do on Sunday is relevant or not, we're studying the book of Exodus, and tomorrow is the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday that we observe. So last week's Wall Street Journal weekend had a two-page lead article, looked like this. Uh, the title of the article was Exodus and American Nationhood. And uh, it was a Yale professor, and he literally told the whole Exodus story, which was beautiful. And then you'll see pictures of the Founding Fathers and Dr. King here. When we started Exodus, I share with you that many nations and peoples look to this Exodus story. Uh, Dr. King is uh, lauded as a Founding Father, though he lived centuries after the founding. Many people believe that he brought to fruition uh, that one clause that all men are created equal. So a remarkable man. Can I tell you a few tidbits about his life that I've enjoyed? I've read several biographies. Uh, the first is his name is actually Michael King. He was named after his father. His father pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And his father went on a trip of Europe, specifically Germany, and then on to the, uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land. But it was in Germany where uh, Michael King... Uh, began to see the far-reaching effects that started with Martin Luther in the Reformation. Actually changed his name to Martin Luther King, and the man we know is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I just find it remarkable that Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther, who started a Reformation, and then Martin Luther King had a Reformation of civil rights. It's just incredible. Uh, the second little tidbit I've always enjoyed is, you know, whenever you talk about the power of vision, you have to talk about Martin Luther King. Because his, his talk or his statement, I have a dream, is in the top three of talks all time. Do you know it was extemporaneous? He was on the National Mall, and he was giving a speech. And Mahala Jackson, if you ever watch the video, she's in the back playing keyboard. She's like, Martin, tell them about the dream. And he launched into this sermon he had preached in many churches called, I have a dream, and you know the rest of it. Um, my favorite quote of Dr. King was at the Ma National Cathedral in March 31st, 1968. Uh, Obama also loved this quote, and in the Oval Office, he had this embroidered uh, on his rug. Uh, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, and it bends towards justice. But I want to read you the actual quote in context, because it'll mean much more to you and me. King said, evil may so shape the events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but that same Christ will rise up and split history into B.C. and A.D. so that even the life of Caesar will be dated by the name of Jesus. Isn't that cool? And then he went on to say, yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. King wasn't saying there was a self-determinism in the world. What he was saying is that God is, a, is, is moving the events of man and that we can be salt and light. So uh, tomorrow's a holiday in his honor, well-deserved, uh, just a remarkable man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for worship and praise and fellowship and conversation and life. Lord, we thank you that all three floors of this building, whether it's youth ministry or children's ministry or adults here, that, God, we can learn and grow together. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for freedom and life and breath. And we ask for our portion today in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to read you a few snippets 
uh, almost everybody is familiar with these events. After the Red Sea, verse 2 says, the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This was their top spiritual gift, if you didn't know. And the children of Israel said, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. When we sat around pots of meat and ate bread to the full, uh, they forgot they were building Pharaoh's cities. For Moses, you brought us out into the wilderness to kill this entire assembly with hunger. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a certain quota every single day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses said to Aaron and to the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Amazing to me that it's not the deliverance of the Red Sea, it's the manna that they're going to see, that they would know it was by the Lord's hand. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord, but what are we that you complain against us? Verse 11, God spoke to Moses again, saying, I have heard the complaints of Israel. At twilight you shall eat meat, but in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening, covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So there were frosted flakes everywhere after the dew lifted. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, and this is Hebrew, they said, manna? Uh, that means, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you eat. <laughs> this isn't what they were expecting, right? They wanted leeks and garlic. And this is the thing which the Lord would have you gather each morning according to everyone's need. Um, you shall gather it uh, for each person. So the children of Israel did, and they measured it by omers. And every man gathered in as he had need. And Moses said, let no one leave any till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, of course, but some of them left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them, so they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. So we're going to look at the manna principle today. Look, God's not going to drop manna in your living room. I think we all understand that, right? This was a historical miracle. This is how God fed them in the wilderness. Now, listen, there is a principle that we can learn and grow by. How do I know? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said all of these things and the manna gathering's name specifically in 1 Corinthians 10, but the entire Old Testament, all these things were written. Why? as our examples that we wouldn't make the same mistakes they did. All these people in the wilderness died in the wilderness. It was the children who would come into the promised land. Uh, but these are our examples that we would learn and grow, that we would not make the same mistakes that they made. So we're going to learn this manna principle today. I've been living by it my entire Christian life. I think it's going to bless you. Uh, some of this will be by, by way of reminder and it's couched in this series that we're doing called Reboot. As I looked around at the landscape of church and people and believers, I kind of sense a soul fatigue. People are tired and weary. And I quoted that verse in Hebrews 12 last week that we need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Why? Because he persevered. 
right? He had the endurance to go through trials and mockings. And if we don't look to Jesus, we're going to get weary, it says, in our souls. This is a place we can get to. As we go through the seasons of life, as we go uphill in life, uh, we can get to these dry wilderness times, and it's okay. A woman emailed me last week. She said, Pastor Bob, I was in tears because I didn't realize it was okay to be in this place. And I shared with her, I said, it's okay, but you don't want to stay there. You know, to be depressed means that something is pressed down in your life. God wants to raise it up. God wants to reboot. He wants to restore. So last week, we talked about living in a contagious community, doing away with the weight and the sin that ensnares us, and having Jesus at the center of who we are to kind of reboot our souls. The soul is who you are. Scientists will tell you that you're your brain, that you're just a series of neurons firing, which means you can't really love your wife or your children if, if neurons are just in charge of that. And by the way, if we were just our brain, we would all be the same, right? There would be no desire and dreams that we all have. No, there's a soul. There's the real you inside. We're spirit, soul, and body. Um, I want to give you a peek inside my soul last week. I was driving to church, and I was like bipolar in my soul, if that's possible. I don't know if that's theologically correct. On one side, I was real excited about what I was going to teach in January and the new year and all that. And then on the other side, because all the noise I've been hearing, I thought, oh my gosh, here we go. This is going to be like the floor of the pandemic, right? So there was a time where when I would tell people I had COVID, almost nobody I knew had COVID. And now all of a sudden, it seemed like everybody had COVID. Cleveland Browns coach had COVID, the assistant coach, 10 other Cleveland Browns. Uh, our NBA basketball team here in Philadelphia, they joked in one of their games there were only seven Sixers. Get it? 76ers? Um, a couple of people on our staff had it, a couple of people in church. They're all better now, all out of quarantine. Uh, but there was so much noise around this, I got our team together, our staff, and said, look, guys, these are our marching orders. We have this new thing called live stream, right? We have this community now that's online. And by the way, our January 3rd live stream, uh, John Riley told me this week, just went over 5,000 views. Now, to put that into perspective, there's an industry standard of multiplication by 2.5 because for every one person watching on their phone, there could be a family of five. So the industry standard is multiplied by 2.5. That's 10,000 people possibly, which is hard to imagine. So we said, look, we have this new thing called live stream, and then we're going to love who's ever here. So when you guys all come, we're going to love on you. We're going to talk to you in the table, the bookstore. We're going to sing together. And those are our marching orders. And I got to tell you, I got here, and I thought it was one of the great kickoffs to a series in January I ever had. People seemed engaged. There was conversation. The table was hopping. And I kind of left here with a little hop in my step. Like, wow, God, I was listening to the noise, and you showed up. But then we had Ardmore at night, to which I was convinced, oh, my gosh, this is going to be difficult. Anna Walker-Roberts, who is probably as optimistic as they come, she was even bracing her team, hey, it might just be us tonight. Now, my son was teaching, so I arrived about five minutes before worship, and we have an upper ballroom, and so when I got to the uh, door, I was still on the sidewalk, I could hear a buzz upstairs. 
And when I got there, people were excited to see one another. Listen, it was the highest attendance we've had since we launched. Uh, my son Mike taught on the Sabbath. We had a blast. People went out to eat after. When I went back down the stairs, I looked at the little storefront that we were thinking about renting to turn into a bookstore cafe to have a presence in Ardmore. And we didn't do it because of COVID. And I felt like vision was pumping through my veins again. And I remember why we went to Ardmore in the first place. We wanted to reach people. Listen, here's what flooded back to me. Faith is a muscle. When you exercise, it gets stronger. When you don't exercise it, it turns to apathy. Remember the spiritual geometry we looked at last week with Israel? Uh, I kind of drew that right triangle. The problem is, problem is I can't draw a right triangle, which two people in email told me. But in a right triangle, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And I said, look, at the base of the triangle are God's promises, right? They're in the Bible. We have to walk them out by faith. On the other side, we know people who have walked in them and God has been faithful. The Hebrews 11 crew, the things God's answered in our lives and everyone since Jesus. So when we're facing great waters or we're in a desert experience, it's really dry. Or we're in a difficult time where everything's stacked against us. We know God will deliver. We understand spiritual geometry. The problem is Israel never understood this. And they all died in the wilderness. They never mixed with faith what they believed. They saw more miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, than any people group that has ever lived. So if you're a miracle chaser, stop it. It doesn't work. They saw everything, and they never mixed it with faith. They never trusted God. And they said, look, it's better to die in Egypt and be a slave than to go out in the wilderness and die and be free. And that thinking is so far removed from anything God has ever told us. Because we live in America, we think freedom is precious, and it is. But, you know, most people would rather be enslaved and comfortable for every Patrick Henry who says, give me liberty or give me death, there's 100 people that just want comfort and security. This is why Rome had bread and circuses. This is why America has all of its entitlement programs. This is why churches will tell you the things you want to hear. But I want to tell you, God wants you to grow, and he wants you to grow significantly, and he wants you to grow every year. Now, here's the problem. It's not really a problem. It's a good problem, let's say. It's an opportunity. It makes all the sense in the world. It's in the Bible. You'll understand it. You can only grow this year to the level that you overcome adversity. Does everybody get that? You're generally not going to grow much this year unless you overcome by faith some type of adversity. So last year we had the pandemic. And I told you when the pandemic came, who you were before the pandemic would be actualized in the pandemic, right? Like maybe before the pandemic, you thought you were cruising, you believed God, you trusted God, and then the pandemic hit, and you probably, it was revealed to you where you really stood. Now hopefully we've all learned and grown and all that. Trials and difficulties enable us to grow. So I was a basketball player, and uh, I was one of these few people, I actually liked practice. And practice could make me better, right? I could shoot 100 foul shots and become a better foul shooter. But till I actually went into a game with a hostile crowd and adversaries standing on a line, 
I really didn't know how good of a player I was. And it was the games where I would grow. Uh, that's why in the old paradigm, seniors were better at the end of the game than brand new freshmen. They, they were seasoned more. Everyone from Job to Peter to Paul grew through adversity. Now, here's what no one will ever tell you. Most people will stand up and tell you what I just said. Hey, you're going to grow through adversity, and they'll give you like a pep talk. But you know what can go the other way? You know adversity can lead us down a dark path where we can get bitter, angry at God, and kind of walk away from the faith. And there's many examples in the Bible. But again, Paul said, may it never be said of us. When we look at the manna in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8 gives God's perspective. And you shall remember that the Lord God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, here's why, to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. He allowed you to be hungry. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, for those of you who came in here and you never read Deuteronomy, you're like, wait a second, didn't Jesus say that? Yeah. You know when he said it? When he was in the wilderness. When he was up against it. When he was fasting for 40 days and the Bible says he was hungry. He was all a man and all of God. And Satan came and watched the temptation. Here's where the manna principle kicks in. The temptation is, since you're the son of God, in other words, you can work your way out of this. You have the power. Turn these stones into bread. And then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the manna was physical. It had spiritual implications. So real quick, I'm going to walk you through the manna principle. And the first thing you need to mark down is the manna was daily. It was every single day. Now, you're all smart enough to know God could have done this any way he wanted, right? Like, he could have dropped a truckload. It would have been more efficient. Fill up, you know, for the month or the week, kind of like you guys go to Costco with these giant carts, right? Like, just fill it up. And then meter it out every day. He could have done that. He could have injected it right into their stomach. How about this one? He could have just taken hunger away. It would have been miraculous any way he had done it. And God didn't do that. He gave it every single day. And listen, it had to be gathered. You had to go out and physically get it. Why was God doing this? Well, the first thing is he was teaching them about his provision uh, the second thing is, it was kind of a combat to fear and worry. Um, but then there was like a spiritual side to it. In my life verse is Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it when? Day and night, every day. And then you'll make your way prosperous and have great success. Eugene Peterson, um, in his classic book, Eat This Book, talking about the Bible, said that Christians feed on Scripture. Holy Scripture nourishes the holy community as God nourishes the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study to use Scripture. We assimilate it. 
We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into the world, healing and evangelism, and justice in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. The Bible is God's invitation to you and me to do life with him. Now, Christians have gotten way off base in this. We've read for knowledge, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up but love edifies. Uh, We've read to kind of legalize people. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know the scriptures, but they don't lead to life. Scripture's an invitation for you and me to know God and to know life and to walk with God, to, to metabolize it into our life. What that means is like physical food, we need it every single day. Now, like the manna, it's accessible, right? Uh, You know, the average evangelical has nine Bibles, not counting, you know, technology. But every study proves we aren't reading it daily. Last year, we introduced the public reading of Scripture. We have the ESV Bibles. We have all these wonderful ways for you now to, to assimilate God's word into your life. You can't just eat on Sunday. You have to eat Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the week. And so we have to find a way to assimilate the word of God into our lives. The second thing about manna is it couldn't be stored up. This is really important. Uh, when I sit around and I talk to Christians, a lot of them are trying to live off of yesterday's manna. Oh, man, I remember the Jesus movement. It was great. People were getting saved and baptized. Yeah, it was great. But what's happening today? Or, you know, I used to go to this church, and I was in the youth group. I mean, people are living and talking in the past. It's yesterday's manna. God wants to know, what are you doing today? Jesus said, when you pray, pray this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us today our daily bread. These are the good old days. These are the days we're living. What's God saying today? Now, that's spiritual manna. There's a physical side to this, right? I want to give you an axiom. And I wrote this because I need it. You can't worry and believe God's promises at the same time. I'm say that again. You can't worry and believe God's promises at the same time. The reason I wrote that is I wrote it for myself. We're all prone to worry. We're all prone to wonder if God will ever come through for us. Uh, I believe worry is a sin. I think I can prove it. If sin is missing the mark, if sin is moving outside of the lines of God's provision, then worry is a sin. And it's probably a socially acceptable sin, right? Like you could walk in here with a pack of cigarettes in your pocket and everybody would be like, oh my gosh. But you could be a worry word, a worry word, and we'll put you on every committee in the church, right? It's just socially acceptable. And we're all prone to it. And it's not only financial, right? Uh, I always said the three most difficult things you'll ever do in raising a child, and I've raised four, potty training. Moms are going like this because they do most of it. When you send that kid off on a bike without training wheels, one of the scariest days of your life, Right? And then the final thing is when you hand over the keys, right? And every time the phone rings, if you're a dad, you're like, oh, please, God, please, God, please, God. I was reading Brene Brown one time, and she was talking about how 
they live in Texas, but her relatives are in Pennsylvania, and the husband wanted to take the kids, and she had every reason under the sun why they shouldn't go, but it was all couched in her fear they would die on the plane or die in an accident. And then she talks about rehearsed tragedies. Uh, and I chuckled when I read it because she would actually picture herself standing around the funeral of her husband and kids. It's like a weird coping mechanism that if you kind of rehearse this tragedy, you'll somehow get through it, even though it'll never happen. And we do all these crazy things because we're prone to worry. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. God clothes the lilies of the field. He feeds the sparrows. By worry, you can't add to your stature. Right? In other words, you're not going to change anything. And there's a colossal downside, right? You know, my doctor tells me 80% of stomach problems and other problems that he deals with are anxiety-based. And yet people go through all these tests and all this medicine. Spirit, soul, and body, it wreaks havoc on you. Jesus said the Gentiles are the ones that are consumed with this. They, they, they live in a material world. It's all they have. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble for itself. The manna was a way for God to teach his people to trust him every day. Every single day of the week. It was necessary because of where they were going. You have to understand this. Look. There's, there's balance. They were going to a land flowing with milk and honey. God said, when you get there, you're going to drink out of wells you didn't dig. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. Every man's going to be under his vine and fig tree. It's going to be a place of abundance, right? He said, but beware, okay? So everyone on their house, you have a beware of dog sign, you should be a beware of abundance sign. Because God said, beware. That means this is when it can happen that you'll forget who I am. When you can pay all the bills and you know where it's all coming from, God said, that's when you're in the deepest trouble. So he gives them this manna principle that they would learn that they would have to trust him each and every single day. Like I said, we're all prone to worry. So just kind of review. You have all these memorized, right? Here's the antidote to worry. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him, why he cares for you. Philippians 4, stop worrying about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind. Philippians 4, 19, God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Cast your cares on the Lord. Now, will God answer all those things you're worrying about? I don't know, and, and I don't know how we'll answer. But he'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. So, uh, my son Mike in Armour tonight is going to talk about generosity. And uh, he has a far different story than I. He's always had enough money to do what he wants to do and to give. And I started out on a different path. Got married young, had kids early. Uh, met, I don't know how many people remember. Met back in the day, you would actually balance your checkbook with a pen in a little book. And at the end, you'd find out how much money you had in the bank. There was no ATM that would give you a balance. I can't tell you how many end of the months I would write in the single digits. Eight, seven. These are dollars I had, right? Robbing Peter to pay Paul, trying to work overtime, things like that. The beautiful thing is Monica and I were just starting to learn the scriptures. 
We're learning how to trust God. Um, we would read verses like Malachi 3 where God said, look, test me in this. That if you bring the tithe into the storehouse, that I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Jesus said, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, that men will give in your bosom. And we live by the manna principle. We would, we would see God's provision and we would still give and God would give back. Now the test is greater. See, when you don't have enough resources, the test is, do you believe God? When you have the resources, will you forget God? See, rich and poor doesn't matter. Um, or will you trust in the uncertainty of riches? Paul wrote to Timothy. He'd have to teach his congregation that. So God had this wonderful way of teaching Monica and I this manna principle. All the while knowing that you know, Proverbs says a wise man sees ahead and plans. The ant stores up for winter. You know, we're not, we're not saying looking ahead for a rainy day is bad. Jesus said if a man goes to fight a war, he brings the right amount of soldiers. But our culture, think about what our culture is doing. Our culture is trying to save millions of dollars for a period of time called retirement they may never see. Now, is it prudent to save for retirement? Yes. But what's the end goal in all this? And where is trust? This is what God is trying to build in each and every one of us. Now, the next one, the next principle is really important, is that the manna, even though it was the same size, same weight, was according to need. Verse 16, this is the commandment which the Lord has commanded you, let every man gather it according to each one's need, According to the number of persons, ch children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it by omers, he who gathered more um, had not none over left over, and the one who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered according to his need. Now this is almost laughable in America, right? The idea of need and want here is so skewed. Again, the Costco shopping cart. I do it. When I go to Costco, I just look at the carts and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Um, and to my lament, I meet more people at Costco sometimes than I meet here. Um, it's the American church, if you hear me rail on it enough. But this idea of need, again, it's almost laughable. Because in America, everything's getting bigger, faster, quicker, right? In the 1970s, um, or 1960s, the average square footage of an American home was 1,100 square feet. 30 years later, in 1990, it was 2,600. Now, in 2020, it's 3,200. Uh, we're building bigger barns by the minute. Stadiums are bigger. Cars are bigger. Everything's bigger, faster, and quicker. And the idea of need uh, just doesn't resonate with us. The word need means enough. Every man was supposed to take enough. So, so there was probably a guy like me, 6'7", 260. And there was probably a little gal, 5'3", 120 over here. And it all had to balance out. Sounds like the New Testament church, right? Everybody had what they needed. Every Christian has to decide when is enough enough. Every Christian has to figure out, am I a product of the culture or am I a product of Scripture? The culture has taught you you're a consumer and you need stuff. God says, yeah, you need stuff, but there's 
a time where enough's enough. I can't tell you what that is. God surely can. Every Christian has to realize what their standard of living will be. Now, God's not against prosperity. There are so many people that prosper and give more, and God gives back and use their homes, and uh, we can go on and on and on. But again, it was according to need. Now, there's one little final principle that I've always loved. Verse 22 says that on the Sabbath, like the day before the Sabbath, they should gather twice as much. This is the first time the word Sabbath is mentioned in the Bible. And uh, we're learning almost every week that the first time it's mentioned is the most important reference. Now, it's already been implied, right? God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. But this is the first time the actual word is here, and it's, and it's, um, it, it's kind of nuanced because it'll be four chapters from here in chapter 20 where they're at Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments. And one of the commandments, and one of the two in the positive is, hey, take a day off. Keep holy the Sabbath. But right here, God says, look, you're going to have to trust me extra by taking this day off. Now, we're all the product of a weekend. What's the big deal? No, the world works seven days a week. They had no trust. Um, Chick-fil-A, on the second busiest day, we all know, of the year, or of the week, they closed their store. The Sabbath was a test, again, would we trust God? Would we recalibrate in our spirit life with him, believing he would provide? Would we celebrate with family and friends? Would we rejuvenate? Would we refresh? So the manna fed them. It was a spiritual principle, but over and above that, this is what God was doing. This is my takeaway. He was testing their faith Would they exercise that muscle. And I'm convinced in your life and my life, this is what he's doing also. God was taking them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But you know, God wasn't concerned with when they got there. It was only an 11-day journey. It took 40 years. And what that teaches me is what I already know. God's never in a hurry. And what it teaches me is this. God was more interested in who they were becoming than where they were going. See, most of us set a goal. This is where I'm going. This is the job I want. This is how much money I want to make. I want to walk with God, start a ministry. We are great at destination diseases. This is where I'm trying to go. God said, no, I'm, I'm more interested in who you're becoming. He was going to take them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But he wanted their hearts to flow with justice and compassion and generosity. Warren Wearsby said, if life were all tests, we'd be a discouraged people. But if life were all pleasures, none of us would ever develop character. We would never see God's hand. We would never become the people we need to be. So there's balance, right? There's seasons of life. For every Red Sea parting, you're going to have the bitter waters at Mara. For every dry wilderness season, you're going to go to the land of milk and honey. The question is, who are we becoming on the way? Are we learning that there's one master, one God who wants to give more than we can ever ask or think? Do we realize that there's more in us than we can ever imagine? 
And that every day God is bringing things into our lives if we would only see them. We're so good at seeing seven days down, 10 days, 15 days, destinations, and God's saying, just look around this day. There's something I'm doing this day. So it makes church so interesting. You don't know who you're going to bless. You don't know who's going to bless you. You don't know who you're going to meet. Who's going to meet you? Tim Keller said, you know, if you lived in the best of circumstances without God, it would be dark, desperate, and almost like death. You'd be living the greatest life, but without God, it would be meaningless. Or you could be going through the worst circumstances with God, and it'd be rich, rewarding, and like in the desert, sweet like the manna. I want to challenge you in 2021 that if you really want to reboot, that start trusting God again wherever you are. Wherever you are in the spectrum, whether it's scripture, physical, whatever it is, start living by the manna principle, believing that every day God's providing something. Um, I think it'll have rich and rewarding uh, aspects to it as you start to live this way. Uh, I think you'll start to look for God in so many places. Uh, when we watched the webinar with Henry Cloud, Henry said, you know, we're setting goals for 2021 and they're here and we're here. And he said, rather than going from here to here, we should bring the goals down to a company like this and then rise together. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's what the church is. Yeah, there's a lot of things we want to do, but we want to do it together. We want to do it in this great cloud of witnesses. Paul said there's something better of us. We can mix faith with what we believe, exercise that muscle, and see God do greater things. The beauty of the Old Testament is it finds its completion in, G in Jesus. In John chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000, he said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. He said, but whoever eats of me will never die, but will live forever. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And Jesus said, if you eat of me, if you come know of me, to eat was to have fellowship, you would know the greatest source of joy and growth that life has ever given.